Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Evening Standard and the Borough Press present Underground, Tales for London, Circle Line by Joanna Cannon, read by Sarah Beckett. Some people read on the underground. Others push buttons on telephones. I've always been more of a thinker. I'm not one for novels, and I only have a mobile telephone because someone in a shop once talked me into it. Cyril was with me, when he went right along with the idea. It'll be good for emergencies, Margaret, he said. Stop you from feeling alone. Except none of the emergencies I've encountered since has ever benefited from the presence of a telephone. And in all honesty, I'm not sure I will ever feel alone again. There are lots of us on tube trains, the thinkers. If you look hard enough, you can spot us amongst the paperbacks and the newspapers and the quiet conversation of strangers. We stare at the floor, losing our thoughts in the clutter of other people's feet. We hide our worries in the tired pattern of the seats. We wrap our feelings along the brightly coloured handrails. Nothing is demanded of you on the underground except to wait and stare, suspended in time and place, as life transfers you from one situation to the next. I have always thought a journey was the perfect opportunity to reflect, to think about what comes next, to wait for God to make a decision about why you're there, I suppose. I enjoy all the different underground services, but the circle line has always been my favourite. More so now. There's a strange comfort in circles, a reassurance although the circle line isn't a circle anymore, of course. A tadpole, Cyril used to call it. Look at its little tail, he'd say, and laugh. Gone are the days when you could rotate around the bowels of London uninterrupted. Now, we are all tipped out at Edgware Road and forced to make a decision about ourselves. Obviously, my decision is very easy. I just catch the next train and travel all the way back again. Everything began just after Cyril died. At least I think it did. It might have been going on for the longest time before then, and I didn't notice. We knew Cyril was going to pass away. 
the consultant told us several times and in no uncertain terms. Do you understand what I'm telling you, he'd say, after every third sentence. Yes, yes, we'd say, we understand. Perhaps we didn't seem distressed enough. Not quite the right amount of sorrow. I hadn't realised there were guidelines on how to behave when someone is told they are dying, but clearly we had fallen outside their parameters. Getting upset shrinks a person though, doesn't it? Because once you allow the misery to escape, it takes with it your resolution and your determination and your resilience and it feeds them all to your problem. Until the problem grows big and fat and you are left behind, emptied and almost disappeared. Much better to remain logical. To hold on to your strength. Everyone dies, Cyril said on the journey back from the hospital. It's not as though it comes as a surprise, is it? We've known it would happen since the day we were born. We were walking home from the tube station. Along avenues the estate agent had once described as leafy, but which were now unburdened of their charm by an early December evening. Cyril was wearing his old brown lace-ups. Shoes I had begged him to replace for the past two years. I studied them as he walked in front of me along the pavement and I said to myself, he'll never agree to replace them now, will he? The thought pierced my mind so suddenly and so deeply that for a few moments I couldn't remember how to breathe. It's not the big thing that tears you apart, is it? It's all the smaller things that gather at its edges. We'll need to go through the box files, he said. Sort out any paperwork. Yes, I said. We will. Tie up any loose ends. Yes, I said. Loose ends. I studied his silhouette in a smudge of orange streetlight. The angle of his trilby. The faint stoop of his shoulders the way he crooked his left arm ever so slightly as though he was always waiting for me to join him. I stared at all these things, and as I stared, I wondered how long they would remain firm in my memory, and how long it would be before I had to start imagining them instead. And of course, we need to make a decision about Jessica. He carried on walking as he said the words, sending them back over his shoulder in the casual way one might talk about the weather. I didn't reply. Whenever I travel on the underground, the thing that fascinates me most is below my feet and above my head. Countless other people are all doing exactly the same thing, yet each of us is completely unaware of the other's existence. All those ordinary lives held together in the darkness. A puzzle of people. People whose lives are inexorably linked to our own yet who will always remain invisible to us. I think about them as I travel the circle line all day. I search, past the smeared windows coated in the breath of strangers, past the white reflection of my own staring, and I wonder who is out there in the darkness, staring back, just out of reach. There's a need for vigilance at the stations, though, so I can't daydream too much. Wood Lane, Latimer Road... Ladbrook Road, Westbourne Park. I could recite them before I go to sleep. Like a small prayer. I never used to notice the names when I was a commuter. 
I would drift from one station to the next without a second thought, relying on the sway of the carriage and some strange, deep-rooted sense of place to know when I should stand and begin making my way through the wall of people towards the doors. Now I follow the map. Now I silently mouth the place names along with the electronic voice. Since Cyril died, I have the quickened eyes of a tourist. The consultant was wary of a time frame, but in the end, his caution was pinpoint. Six months, almost to the week. Those were a strange six months, because when Cyril first became ill, we spent all our time searching for encouragement. Each evening, we sifted through the events of the day to feed our optimism. Archaeologists of hope. Once we knew he was dying, the treasure hunt was over. We were on a road of inevitability, and no matter how attractive we tried to make the landscape, the certainty of our path made each day seem less fruitful, more of an obligation to get to the other side. It's at times like those you realise it's only really hope that glues everything else together. As luck would have it, Cyril was reasonably well until the final two weeks. There were days so mundane we celebrated in the reassurance of their ordinariness. The comfort of small routines, the absence of hospital appointments and doctors who had run out of ideas, the small seed of absurdity that perhaps they had got it all wrong. They hadn't, of course. The drawer spilling with medication told us that. The cheery, hello, of the Macmillan nurse. Ridiculous things like the best before dates on tins of soup and the day the daffodils finally died away. We tiptoed around the illness for fear it would waken at the sound of our voices and grow larger. On occasion, though, it needed to be mentioned, even if it was indirectly. You'll remember where we keep the spare fuses, he said. I will, I replied. And that back door always starts sticking when the weather changes. You just need to push it with your foot, right at the bottom. I know, Cyril, I said. I know. We sorted out the box files. Cyril spent entire mornings at the dining room table, peering over the top of his glasses at pieces of paper, making a decision about each one and putting them all into piles. Keep, throw away, undecided. It felt as though he was going on annual leave temporarily handing over custody and giving me an opportunity to be solely in charge of our lives for a short while. Except it wouldn't be our lives anymore. It would be just mine. After a few weeks, he finally reached the bottom of the last file. The only things remaining were errant paper clips and receipts so faded no one would ever know what had been received. It was only at that point he turned to me took off his glasses and placed them very carefully on the tablecloth. We need to tell Jessica, he said. I straightened the piles of keep, throw away, undecided. I gathered up the paper clips. I stared out of the patio doors into the watercolour of a spring lunchtime. I don't think there's any need to tell her, I said. Why does she even have to know? Cyril pinched at the bridge of his nose, where his spectacles had left the dent of a morning's work. She'll wonder where I am, Margaret. I'll tell her you've gone away, I said. 
Cyril shook his head very slightly. I'll tell her you've left me then. That's it. I put the paper clips back into a box file. That should do the trick. Cyril gave a very large sigh. She needs to know the truth, Margaret. She's not stupid. No, I said. No, she's not stupid. Feeble-minded. That was the term they used about Jessica. I was a small child, but I still remember it. Not stupid or thick or backward, but feeble-minded. Perhaps in an attempt to make the whole thing sound more elegant. No one's fault. One of those things. My mother said she always knew Jessica was different as soon as she was born. Jessica wasn't like you, Margaret, she would tell me. You were the only baby I had to go by, but I knew there was something wrong right from the start. Jessica was fractious, restless, loud. She refused to be comforted. She wouldn't feed. She wouldn't sleep. She screamed all day and all night. I would lie in bed, fingers pressed into my ears, trying to remember a time when she didn't exist. There didn't seem to be a week when Jessica hadn't succumbed to one infection or another, when she wasn't struggling to swallow, when she wasn't filled with rage. My parents tried everything. A carousel of specialists in distant rooms. My mother, thick with misery. My father, fingertips barely touching the edges of reason. I don't remember much of the conversations, but I do remember one doctor smiling at my parents across the width of a desk and saying, Why not have another baby? This one really isn't going to bring you very much joy. Keep, throw away, undecided. Jessica couldn't speak, but she understood. As she grew, she learned other ways to communicate. Kicks, bites, scratches. It would take my mother hours to dress her each morning as I watched from a doorway. There were days my mother painted her face in coats of bright optimism, and other days when she would curl up in the corner of the room and have to be coaxed back into the world again by my father. When Jessica was five, it was decided she was uneducable, disabled of the mind. She couldn't be sent to school, and so the education authority thought she should be put into an institution instead. The health authority agreed. My parents, who looked after Jessica every waking minute of her life and who were the greatest authority of all, were never listened to. We fought to keep her at home, my mother said for years afterwards. We fought as hard as we could. I never really knew if she was telling me or telling some past, long-forgotten version of herself. Jessica was sent away. It was for the best. Everything was for the best. My parents said it to each other. People said it to my parents. Doctors, friends, strangers in the street. For the best became attached to every sentence like a quietening balm. A balm that soothes but never heals. The first place was a sprawl of Victorian melancholy in a far corner of Essex. We travelled there each Sunday. Whilst everyone else went to church, my parents went to worship at an altar of their own self-loathing. Getting there and back to the best part of a day, 
and I would stare through the smeared windows of train carriages and watch London ebb and flow until it was replaced by farms and fields and the scatter of nameless villages. St Catherine's, it said at the gate, children's home for the mentally defective, as though all the children inside were small pieces of damaged machinery. The corridors were lengthy and yellowed. The doors were all shut. Staff skimmed the edges of distant hallways, but we never saw any other children. You could hear them, though. Echoing around the fancy cornices and the giant cast-iron fireplaces, the smothered sound of unquiet minds. Jessica waited for us in a panelled room. My sister, buttoned into someone else's clothes because no one wore their own things at St Catherine's. There was a giant cupboard at the far end of each dormitory, and what the staff decided to dress you in was potluck. All the beautiful outfits my mother had made were walking around on someone else. The four of us sat in a semicircle of matching high-backed chairs and stared at each other. My mother would try to hug Jessica. Jessica would squirm away. Then the three of us would leave. It felt like a trip to the Natural History Museum. As though we had been to look at an exhibition no one else knew anything about. They make documentaries about these places now. Cyril and I watched one. There was a presenter standing in a derelict room, waving his hands around and shouting about asylums. Black and white photographs. The stutter of an old film reel. All those broken lives. All those unheard stories. Except this wasn't just a story. This was my sister. Cyril was right. Jessica isn't stupid. There's little point in starting my day now until the rush hour is over, as London is held static in a charge of elbows and frustration. Cyril and I used to be in the middle of that. We spent years pressed into endless carriages, breathing into the material of strangers' overcoats, standing on the right, living our lives behind yellow lines. I usually set off from home around 10.30. That way, I can go about my business in peace. I take a packed lunch, because it can get quite expensive going to those little kiosks at the stations. I used to take my knitting, just to pass the time, but I quickly realised you need to have your wits about you to have any chance of success. It's easy to miss someone in a crowded carriage, and you can spend the rest of the day trying to locate them again. I tend to look at people's feet if I've a moment to spare, because it's amazing what you can learn about someone just from their shoes. I try to guess the kind of person they belong to, and when I look up, nine times out of ten, I'm right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The only time I allow myself to daydream is when we're beneath Hammersmith. I know Jessica is up there somewhere. She has moved many times since the days of St Catherine's. Sheltered, assisted, lodge, house, 
home, care. The same situation wrapped up in different words. Victorian panels were swapped for primary coloured walls. High-backed chairs for activity rooms and sensory play. She was given a physiotherapist, a nutritionist, an occupational therapist. She even had a speech therapist who managed to find a voice no one had ever heard before. Jessica uses this voice sparingly. Words chosen with care and usually released from her mouth one by one. In that way, I think she is probably wiser than the lot of us. Wherever she's lived, though, it's always been the same. She is forever out of sight. In the far corner of hospital grounds, or behind towering hedges, shuttered windows, closed blinds, hidden away where no one else can see. It was the thing Cyril remarked upon the first time he met her. My parents were long gone, and I had been left to make the pilgrimage alone each Sunday until Cyril volunteered to go with me. Where is it then? he said. Jessica had been moved yet again, and we were driving through the edges of Kent, Cyril peering through the passenger window. You can't see it from the road. It's beyond those trees, do you see? I pointed. Round the bend, he said. Pardon? I took my eyes off the road. What did you say? It's where the saying comes from. Round the bend. People were housed where no one would ever think to look. Is it true? Did the saying really originate because of that? I don't know, he shrugged. Makes sense though, doesn't it? We only see what's right in front of us, don't we? I turned the car into the long driveway. I suppose so, I said. Jessica loved Cyril. At first, I thought it was because he was someone new to stare at, but she never lost her fascination for him. She moved with us through each decade, but it was always difficult to see her as anything but a child even though her body grew hunched and brittle with age, her hair became grey, and upon her face the lines appeared of a life which had never quite been lived. Why don't you take her out? One of the staff would say, seeing how settled she was. The park, or for a little drive? I don't think so, I'd answer quickly before Cyril had the chance. The weather looks a bit unpredictable. Maybe next time. If the weather wasn't unpredictable, it would be too hot to sit in a car, or too cold. The park would be too noisy, or too quiet. The grass too wet, the air too dry. Maybe next time. Jessica would follow the conversation, her gaze darting between us, eyes black as jet, just like our mother's. The staff take her out all the time, you know. Cyril said one day on the drive home. The shops, the cinema. She went to the theatre the other week. She loves the theatre. I'm aware of that, I said. So, why is it never next time? I stared at the traffic lights as we waited. I didn't reply. Why do you want to keep her hidden away? Are you ashamed? I turned to him and stared. She's my sister. Of course I'm not ashamed. Just because we're married doesn't give you the right to insult me left, right and centre. I'm not insulting you, Margaret. 
I'm just trying to get to the bottom of it. The thing Cyril didn't realise was that I was trying to get to the bottom of it too. The staff stopped asking after a while. It was probably written in Jessica's notes somewhere. Family refuses to take resident out. Reason unknown. Even to me. We told Jessica about Cyril on his last visit. He was right. She understood straight away. I could see the news travel through her eyes. She'd known death before, of course. Our parents. Other residents she had made friends with. Even one or two staff. Cyril was different, though. There was a special bond between them, and I was very worried she'd become hysterical. She didn't. She didn't even cry. She just listened until we'd finished telling her, and then she reached over and put her hand on Cyril's arm. Sorry, she said. It was a long time before he answered. When he finally did, he said, Well... Perhaps Margaret will take you out somewhere when it's just the two of you. The cinema, perhaps. Or the theatre. He turned to me and smiled. And I couldn't help but smile back. Cyril could never resist having the last word. Two weeks later, Cyril died. It's strange, because no matter how much time you have, you always want to barter with God for just a little more even the few seconds it takes to tell someone you love them. There is always something else to say, isn't there? But the clock, which began ticking the day Cyril was born, had finally stopped, and there would be no more I love yous, no more goodbyes, no more last words. The people at the hospice were very kind. It takes a special sort of person to deal with dying every day, I think. I couldn't do it. I said as much to one of the nurses when I went to collect Cyril's things. Irish she was, dark hair, very pale, full of smiling. Margaret, she told me, I just think of it as helping someone on their journey. Like John Lennon. John Lennon? He said death was like getting out of one car and into another. Isn't that a beautiful way to look at it? I stared down at my carrier bag filled with Cyril's things. A cardigan, an old pair of pyjamas, a novel he never got round to finishing. His spectacles. It really is, I said. It was the first time it happened. On the journey home from the hospice, I know for a fact because I remember sitting on the tube and holding on to that carrier bag for dear life. It must have been a while before my change because I was studying people's feet and trying to keep my eyes open. King's Cross, perhaps, or the Barbican. I'd been watching a pair of alarmingly weather-inappropriate pink sandals and I'd moved down the line of passengers to a high pair of stiletto boots. It was only then I spotted them. Between the boots and a scruffy pair of trainers. Old brown lace-ups. Exactly the same as Cyril's. It was understandable, I suppose. People are bound to have the same footwear. But it was a few minutes before I could steal myself and see who they belonged to. I gripped on to the carrier bag. Because when I looked up, I realised who was wearing them. It was Cyril. 
he smiled at me across the aisle. My mouth moved, but the only thing that came out was a small series of gasps. The woman next to me looked up from her paperback and frowned. We went through at least four stations and the only thing I could do was stare. The woman and her paperback got off at Blackfriars and Cyril moved down the carriage and sat next to me. We buried you last Thursday, I whispered. You're dead. I am, he whispered back and he laughed. I noticed he didn't cough afterwards anymore. Am I hallucinating? I said. Have I lost my marbles? He laughed again. No, Margaret, you haven't lost your marbles. Then what in the name of God is a dead person doing right in the underground? I tried to keep my voice lowered, but it was a battle. Oh, it's not just me. He waved to a young woman who was reading the evening standard at the far end of the carriage. She gave a little wave back over the top of her newspaper. What? It's where you go when you die, he said. The underground. It's the perfect opportunity to reflect. To think about what comes next. To wait for God to make a decision about why you're there, I suppose. Can everyone else see you? I said. Of course they can. I glanced around the carriage. Men, women, old, young. A tangle of people and newspapers and carrier bags. How do you know who's dead and who's alive? You don't, he said. So... Why isn't the place swarming with newspaper reporters? Why has no one mentioned this before? Margaret, he turned to me, when does anyone ever look? We're all too busy with our own journeys to notice anyone else's. The train pulled into Gloucester Road. This is my stop. Cyril got to his feet. He edged his way past a teenager with a giant rucksack. Excuse me, young man. Sorry, mate. The lad lifted the rucksack out of the way and Cyril was gone. I watched him walk down the platform as we pulled away. My eyes were on stalks. The following day, I was on the underground the minute the station opened. I studied everyone, each face. I searched for Cyril everywhere, but I couldn't spot him. I saw several people I knew, though. My mother's cousin who had an unfortunate encounter with a combine harvester in the mid-80s. My old maths teacher, quite a few past members of the WI, and a next-door neighbour who died in a house fire in 1972. She waved to me from the far end of the platform at Tower Hill. Not a mark on her. I'd all but given up on Cyril when I caught up with him eastbound, eating a tuna and sweet corn sandwich. You took some finding. I said. Are you always on the circle line? I still don't know how it works. More often than not, and it isn't something you need to worry about, Margaret. It's amazing who you find, though, isn't it? People just never bother looking. I studied the other people in the carriage. A few of them were asleep or staring at the floor. Most of them were absorbed by their telephone screens. Amazing. I said. We easily slipped into our old conversations and it was only as we passed through Hammersmith that I looked up. How's Jessica? Cyril said. She misses you, 
I turned to him. We both do. He reached for my hand. Have you taken her out? You can't resist, can you? I just don't understand why not, he said. The right words wouldn't join together. No, I said. Nor do I. I started spending every day on the circle line. You never know who you might bump into, and it's much more entertaining than the television. I keep hoping I'll spot my parents. No luck yet, but it can only be a matter of time. Cyril is never very hard to locate because he's such a creature of habit. We usually spend a good hour or so passing the time of day. I keep him up to speed with the news. He never fails to ask about Jessica and he always wants to know if I've taken her out. I wish you'd stop nagging, I said just this afternoon. We were westbound, just leaving Victoria. It would do you the power of good. Your sisters, after all. Well, that's just it, isn't it? The words finally joined together and began spilling from my mouth. Sisters? Sisters go shopping together, have lunch, go to the theatre, they have fun, they enjoy each other's company. You can do all of those things, he said. Yes, but not in the same way, not in the same way. I knew my voice was raised because a few people looked across. And I'd rather have nothing than a faint, washed-out example to remind me of something I'll never have the chance to experience. He stared at me. I could feel the breath in my lungs, fighting for a way out amongst all the words. There. I've said it. Margaret, don't even bother, I said. He didn't speak for a very long time. When he did, it was almost a whisper. Haven't you learned anything from these encounters? I didn't take my eyes off the advertisements on the wall. I don't know what you mean. Whose journey are you thinking of, Margaret? I looked at him, but I didn't answer. He squeezed my hand. Who else is in that carriage with you? The train stopped, and this time we both got out. We walked along the platform in silence, through the tiled tunnelways and secret paths that take you on the next leg of wherever you might be travelling to. The only thing I could hear was the sound of our footsteps. I hear there's a new play opening on the south bank, I said very quietly, just above the footsteps. Yes, yes, I hear that too, Cyril said. We reached the escalators. Jessica loves the theatre, you know. He put his arm around my shoulder and gave me a little hug. I'm aware of that, he said. Will I see you tomorrow? He leaned in and kissed my cheek. I'm never far away, Margaret. You've just got to keep your eyes peeled. He took the next stair and began travelling upwards. Of course, he turned back to me. You know what it is, don't you? What? I could feel my eyes start to fill, and I wasn't even sure why. Next week. You know what play is opening? I shook my head. He pointed to the little adverts that hang on the wall and change every few seconds. 
he was moving further away. It's Macbeth, he shouted. I couldn't help but smile, even though the tears were running down my face. Macbeth, he pointed again, and a few people turned to look. I could still hear him laughing as he reached the top of the escalator and disappeared into the crowds at King's Cross. Circle Line is a short story of the underground from Joanna Cannon. Joanna Cannon's latest novel, Three Things About Elsie, is out now and is available in audiobook, hardback and ebook. You can find the other stories in this collection from the Borough Press on Audible, Kobo and Apple. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.